the law school of america causation is the causal relationship between the defendant's conduct and end result in other words causation provides a means of connecting conduct with a resulting effect typically an injury in criminal law it is defined as the actus reus an action from which the specific injury or other effect arose and is combined with mens rea a state of mind to comprise the elements of guilt causation only applies where a result has been achieved and therefore is immaterial with regard to inchoate offenses background concepts legal systems more or less try to uphold the notions of fairness and justice if a state is going to penalize a person or require that person pay compensation to another for losses incurred liability is imposed according to the idea that those who injure others should take responsibility for their actions although some parts of any legal system will have qualities of strict liability in which the mens rea is immaterial to the result and subsequent liability of the actor most look to establish liability by showing that the defendant was the cause of the particular injury or loss even the youngest children quickly learn that with varying degrees of probability consequences flow from physical acts and omissions the more predictable the outcome the greater the likelihood that the actor caused the injury or loss intentionally there are many ways in which the law might capture this simple rule of practical experience that there is a natural flow to events that a reasonable man in the same situation would have foreseen this consequence is likely to occur that the loss flowed naturally from the breach of contractual duties or tortuous actions etc however it is phrased the essence of the degree of fault attributed will lie in the fact that reasonable people try to avoid injuring others so if harm was foreseeable there should be liability to the extent that the extent of the harm actually resulting was foreseeable relationship between causation and liability causation of an event alone is insufficient to create legal liability sometimes causation is one part of a multi-stage test for legal liability for example for the defendant to be held liable for the tort of negligence the defendant must have owed the plaintiff a duty of care breached that duty by so doing caused damage to the plaintiff and that damage must not have been too remote causation is just one component of the tort on other occasions causation is the only requirement for legal liability other than the fact that the outcome is proscribed for example in the law of product liability the courts have come to apply to principle of strict liability the fact that the defendant's product caused the plaintiff harm is the only thing that matters the defendant need not also have been negligent on still other occasions causation is irrelevant to legal liability altogether for example under a contract of indemnity insurance the insurer agrees to indemnify the victim for harm not caused by the insurer but by other parties because of the difficulty in establishing causation it is one area of the law where the case law overlaps significantly with general doctrines of analytic philosophy to do with causation the two subjects have long been intermingled establishing causation where establishing causation is required to establish legal liability it usually involves a two-stage inquiry firstly establishing factual causation then legal or proximate causation factual causation must be established before inquiring into legal or proximate causation establishing factual causation the usual method of establishing factual causation is the but for test the but for test inquires but for the defendant's act would the harm have occurred a shoots and wounds be we ask but for a's act would b have been wounded the answer is no so we conclude that a caused the harm to b The but for test is a test of necessity. It asks was it necessary for the defendant's act to have occurred for the harm to have occurred. In New South Wales, this requirement exists in S5D of the Civil Liability Act 2002 NSW, reinforcing established common law principles. One weakness in the but for test arises in situations where each of several acts alone are sufficient to cause the harm. For example, 
if both A and B fire what would alone be fatal shots at C at approximately the same time, and C dies, it becomes impossible to say that but for A's shot, or but for B's shot alone, C would have died. Taking the but for test literally in such a case would seem to make neither A nor B responsible for C's death. The courts have generally accepted the but for test notwithstanding these weaknesses, qualifying it by saying the causation is to be understood as the man in the street would, or by supplementing it with common sense. This dilemma was handled in the United States in State v. Tally, 15 so 722, 738, Alabama 1894, where the court ruled that, the assistance given, need not contribute to criminal result in the sense that but for it the result would not have ensued. It is quite sufficient if it facilitated a result that would have transpired without it. Using this logic, A and B are liable in that no matter who was responsible for the fatal shot, the other facilitated the criminal act even though his shot was not necessary to deliver the fatal blow. However, legal scholars have attempted to make further inroads into what explains these difficult cases. Some scholars have proposed a test of sufficiency instead of a test of necessity. H. L. A. Hart and Tony Honore, and later Richard Wright, have said that something is a cause if it is a necessary element of a set of conditions jointly sufficient for the result. This is known as the Ness test. In the case of the two hunters, the set of conditions required to bring about the result of the victim's injury would include a gunshot to the eye, the victim being in the right place at the right time, gravity, etc. In such a set, either of the hunter's shots would be a member, and hence a cause. This arguably gives us a more theoretically satisfying reason to conclude that something was a cause of something else than by appealing to notions of intuition or common sense. Hart and Honoré, in their famous work Causation in the Law, also tackle the problem of too many causes. For them, there are degrees of causal contribution. A member of the Ness set is a causally relevant condition. This is elevated into a cause where it is a deliberate human intervention, or an abnormal act in the context. So, returning to our Hunter example, Hunter A's grandmother's birth is a causally relevant condition, but not a cause. On the other hand, Hunter A's gunshot, being a deliberate human intervention in the ordinary state of affairs, is elevated to the status of cause. An intermediate position can be occupied by those who occasion harm, such as accomplices. Imagine an accomplice to a murder who drives the principal to the scene of the crime. Clearly the principal's act in committing the murder is a cause, on the but-for or nest test. So is the accomplice's act in driving the principal to the scene of the crime. However, the causal contribution is not at the same level, and, incidentally, this provides some basis for treating principals and accomplices differently under criminal law. Leon Green and Jane Stapleton are two scholars who take the opposite view. They consider that once something is a but for, Green, or Ness, Stapleton, condition, that ends the factual inquiry altogether, and anything further is a question of policy. Establishing Legal Causation Notwithstanding the fact that causation may be established in the above situations, the law often intervenes and says that it will nevertheless not hold the defendant liable because in the circumstances the defendant is not to be understood, in a legal sense, as having caused the loss. In the United States, this is known as the doctrine of proximate cause. The most important doctrine is that of novus actus interveniens, which means a new intervening act which may cut the chain of causation. Proximate cause the but-for test is factual causation and often gives us the right answer to causal problems, but sometimes not. Two difficulties are immediately obvious. The first is that under the but-for test, almost anything is a cause. But for a tortfeasor's grandmother's birth, the relevant tortious conduct would not have occurred. But for the victim of a crime missing the bus, he or she would not have been at the site of the crime and hence the crime would not have occurred. Yet in these two cases, the grandmother's birth or the victim's missing the bus are not intuitively causes of the resulting harm. 
This often does not matter in the case where cause is only one element of liability, as the remote actor will most likely not have committed the other elements of the test. The legally liable cause is the one closest to or most proximate to the injury. This is known as the proximate cause rule. However, this situation can arise in strict liability situations. Intervening cause. Imagine the following. A critically injures B. As B is wheeled to an ambulance, she is struck by lightning. She would not have been struck if she had not been injured in the first place. Clearly then, a cause B's whole injury on the but-for or nest test. However, at law, the intervention of a supervening event renders the defendant not liable for the injury caused by the lightning. The effect of the principle may be stated simply. If the new event, whether through human agency or natural causes, does not break the chain, the original actor is liable for all the consequences flowing naturally from the initial circumstances. But if the new act breaks the chain, the liability of the initial actor stops at that point, and the new actor, if human, will be liable for all that flows from his or her contribution. Note, however, that this does not apply if the eggshell skull rule is used. For details, see article on the eggshell skull doctrine. Independent sufficient causes. When two or more negligent parties, where the consequence of their negligence joins together to cause damages, in a circumstance where either one of them alone would have caused it anyway, each is deemed to be an independent sufficient cause, because each could be deemed a substantial factor, and both are held legally responsible for the damages. For example, where negligent firestarter A's fire joins with negligent firestarter B's fire to burn down house C, both A and B are held responsible. For example, Anderson v. Minneapolis, 1920, this is an element of legal cause. Summers v. Tice rule. The other problem is that of overdetermination. Imagine two hunters, A and B, who each negligently fire a shot that takes out C's eye. Each shot on its own would have been sufficient to cause the damage. But for A's shot, would C's eye have been taken out? Yes. The same answer follows in relation to B's shot. But on the but for test, this leads us to the counterintuitive position that neither shot caused the injury. However, courts have held that in order to prevent each of the defendants avoiding liability for lack of actual cause, it is necessary to hold both of them responsible. This is known, simply, as the Summers v. Tice rule. Concurrent actual causes. Suppose that two actors' negligent acts combine to produce one set of damages, where but for either of their negligent acts, no damage would have occurred at all. This is two negligences contributing to a single cause, as distinguished from two separate negligences contributing to two successive or separate causes. These are concurrent actual causes. In such cases, courts have held both defendants liable for their negligent acts. Example, A leaves a truck parked in the middle of the road at night with its lights off. B fails to notice it in time and plows into it, where it could have been avoided, except for one of negligence, causing damage to both vehicles. Both parties were negligent. Hill v. Edmonds, 1966. The Law School of America. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America.